Hello and welcome to another episode of In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Dishakar Nanjani. Today I'm speaking with Charlie Coleman, Associate Professor of History at Columbia University and author of the book, The Spirit of French Capitalism, Economic Theology in the Age of Enlightenment, out in 2021 from Stanford University Press. What brought you to this project? So the book began as part of a far larger project. Uh, and in some ways that project, that larger project was inspired by an insight made by Ernst Kassira many, many years ago. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's that we should approach the enlightenment not as the decline of belief, but as the proliferation of belief. Uh, that the Enlightenment proclaims new forms of faith uh, and new forms of religion. And I had hoped to trace that proliferation, or really those proliferations of belief, not only through experiments of financial credit, but also uh, experimental modalities of philosophical ascent, including uh, atheism itself, so belief and unbelief. Uh, through popular science like mesmerism, sorry, mesmerism, so on and so forth. Um, and I made my way through part of that work and realized it was completely unmanageable, uh, that there was no way that I, I could maintain any coherence within a single monograph. But I'd already done a fair amount of the research that eventually made its way into the John Law chapter in the book. And so that's where I decided to redouble my efforts. Um, and then I alighted upon the interpretive framework of economic theology in part from my reading of Agamben. Uh, and I was particularly impressed by uh, and his claim that theology is always already economic, economistic. Um, and it was then that the kind of point of the book started to crystallize for me. And then what I wound up trying to do was show how active modes of representation that were theorized and practiced by Catholic theologians, certainly in the doctrine of transubstantiation, uh, but also in Catholic renderings of alchemical transmutation, came to legitimize the material field as one in which greater quantities of goods, be they spiritual goods uh, or physical goods, uh, circulated via the media of instruments, financial instruments like currency and bills of exchange, commodities themselves, uh, but also spiritual instruments like the sacraments. Uh, and then it was at a relatively late stage that I decided partly for reasons of space, partly for the sake of analytical clarity, that the through line or one of the through lines of the book would be an economic theological account of how commodity fetishism came to be. And so you're writing then in a sense, as you trace at once, the historiography and political theory of this very question of, of where the economy comes from um, or our understandings of how the economy works come from, um, as well as providing your own narrative situated in precisely the nexus that you laid out. And so you're writing in some senses um, against Marx on religion and his particular sort of narrativization of that development when Marx is a historian or narrator, while also as you put it, quote, historicizing the insights found in capital in particular as they relate to the value form and the relationship between use value and exchange value. How do those pieces figure into the story of French capitalism then um, when you as well are doing, you know, a work of narrative history as well as um, really digging into some of the mechanics of political economy as they existed for France in this period? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that my, my efforts to work through Marx are ongoing uh, and, and likely will occupy me for some time. But I, here's my thinking I, at this juncture, juncture reflected in, in the book. 
part of it was trying to recover elements of Marx's thought that are there, um, but don't always fit neatly into the schematic of vulgar materialism. Uh, and the first, well, the point of departure really is his claim that all criticism begins with religious criticism. Uh, and then he proceeded in the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right uh, to make statements that I, I quote in the book, like, you know, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature. It's the heart of the heartless world. Um, and his more fundamental understanding that religion has to go hand in hand with an understanding of the social condition that gave rise to it. Um, so that was in some ways, both a point of departure, but also a terminus for, for the book. Um, and of course, Marx's primary aim is not to offer critique of religion, it's to offer critique of capitalism. Uh, and you know, I'll be damned if he didn't wind up following you know, his own advice in a lot of ways. Um, his critique of the commodity form in the first part of the first volume of Capital, it begins with the fetish character of the commodity, with the mysterious nature of the commodity, the mysterious allure and power that it wields over workers, of course, but also over consumers themselves. Uh, and then the work ends in the third volume of Capital with references to transubstantiation of all things. Um, and transubstantiation, this distinctly Catholic doctrine as a means of accounting for the fantasy of interest-bearing capital. So it's there in some ways from the beginning to the end. Now, I only alighted upon those references, particularly to transubstantiation, fairly late uh, in, my, in my own research. I'm not primarily an uh, intellectual historian of Marx or Marxism. Uh, but once I found them, they resonated quite powerfully with what the work I tried to do to that point. Um, and I was struck by the ways in which Marx's thinking about the generative qualities of money seemed to be drawing on these early modern theological polemics uh, between Catholics and Protestants. I don't know exactly how deeply steep he was in those polemics. He seems to have had some familiarity with them through his reading of Hegel. Um, but what I, you know, as, as, as you pointed out, what I was trying to do was historicize those from Marx, which at first glance seem rather strange, or they seem at least unexpected from the founder of historical materialism within a much longer and deeper intellectual, but even more specifically, theological and economic theological context. So from that perspective, I mean, it's not so much that I want to take certain Marxian premises and then, and then apply them or exemplify them. It's more a matter of trying to show how Marx himself extended and perhaps codified uh, claims that Catholic economic theologians in France have been making throughout the long 18th century. Um, so the, the Marx that I'm dealing with winds up in some ways being less original than he would appear at first glance, but nonetheless, he's important uh, because you know, far more than the subjects of my book, he is able to offer a totalizing uh, theoretical account of capitalism. Uh, so there's a way in which I'm also using Marx as a kind of metagame uh, for, for capitalism or a certain rendering of capitalism that couldn't have been apparent uh, in, in the 18th century. Um, so again, I'm trying to historicize Marx, but more particularly by showing his indebtedness to this long tradition uh, in theological, but more specifically economic theological polemic. So if we turn then to the way that you narrate the, the threads here, um, you write, for instance, in your introduction that, quote, under the old regime, the clergy were both practically and theoretically entangled 
in the host of economic affairs. And of course, not all of your actors are clergy, but it's sort of broadening that outward a little bit. And in particular, thinking about that entanglement, for you in this book, what do those practical and theoretical entanglements have to do with one another? And for you as a historian needing to, needing to, or perhaps wanting to produce this narrative, how did you go about writing the relationship between the practice and the thought that you saw at work and in what these people were were doing? Right. Yeah. I mean, well, to follow to follow from your your last question on Marx, it it, it turns out, or at least turned out to me, that priests made for uh, surprisingly good um, exemplars of praxis. Uh, they couldn't afford not to be given the sheer financial and economic preponderance of the church in France throughout this period. I mean, as is, as is well known, the French church owned around 10% of all the land in the kingdom. Some estimates have it going up to around 15%. Uh, the tithe um, generated 180 million livres uh, of revenue a year. That's 80% of the tithe, which is the basic land tax. Uh, so we're dealing with pretty staggering sums of money. Um, but at the same time, uh, preachers were giving advice about finances from the pulpit in their sermons. Uh, and there's a rich genre of printed sermons, particularly in the second half of the 18th century. Uh, and that advice was yes, practical, but it was always theologically and spiritually uh, informed. Uh, you see similar uh, intersections between theology and practice in the role that priests often played as arbiters of merchant courts. Uh, my, my colleague Amalia Kessler uh, has written powerfully uh, on, on that role. So, I mean, as a corporate body, the church was indispensable uh, to not only public finance, but also private finance uh, in the 18th century in France. In addition, it administered, or at least claimed to administer, this massive, inexhaustible repository of spiritual wealth. But spiritual wealth that was more often than not materially instantiated. Think of consecrated host. The host actually existed as physical objects, communion wine, holy water, relics the ornate vessels that were designed and produced to convey uh, those spiritual riches. Uh, a litany of devotional objects. I focus on the rosary in particular, we can think of you know, crucifixes, uh, religious books, religious prints. Um, and the Protestant challenge and the iconoclasm wielded by many of the reformers compelled the Catholic Church to explain their relationship to a kind of materialized, and I would argue, economized spirituality. It's only in the wake of the Council of Trent that transubstantiation is elevated to uh, the status of official church dogma. Uh, and then what you also see beginning with Trent is this concerted effort, not only to explain in abstract theological terms, but in more practical devotional terms, what it meant to represent spiritual wealth in an active sense, in a way that was mediated through economic theological instruments. Uh, and so not only do you see catechisms that are modeled on the catechism of the Council of Trent. Catechism is a manual. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an instructional genre. Uh, but then one also finds an array of devotional manuals for confraternities that were founded uh, among not only uh, the clergy, but also the laity to organize uh, the adoration of the Eucharist uh, or the adoration of the rosary. Um, uh, later in the century. Um, and so, I mean, as if I can, if I can turn from some of the more contextual details to 
something approximating a more methodological pronouncement. I, I, I found myself being guided by Wittgenstein's language game, by J.L. Austin's speech acts. Uh, and I would, I would say now incidentally in Austin's case, he cites the sacraments, sacraments of uh, marriage and baptism to exemplify what he means by, by speech acts. But um, it occurred to me that, that, that theologians uh, who believe that by uttering uh, a liturgical expression, they could trigger the transformation of a completely banal substance, you know, bread, into the most sublime substance imaginable, the actual body of Christ. They were deeply committed to this idea that, that words have power uh, and that that power is instantiated in our material life. And so then that engendered uh, a desire, but really a need uh, to establish practical parameters for how to, how to wield and distribute that power and that wealth. So if we're talking of, of belief and, and power in particular, I wanted to ask you, how economic thought in the Enlightenment in France, um, or, or what it had to do with belief. You've mentioned a little bit about um, the kind of mechanics of those relationships, but I wanted to ask at the level again of, of your writing, um, how you went about writing about that relationship between something called belief or understood as belief and something understood as facts or process or, or law. Um, when precisely what's at stake here, because we're in the enlightenment, are the conditions right. for the transformation of those, those very things and the borders between them. How do you write about a moving target like that? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess first I, I would refer back to Kassira's revelatory claim about the enlightenment as not so much about the decline of belief, but it's about the proliferation of belief. Uh, but we've also had so much fantastic work in historical epistemology on this period uh, over the last you know, decade or so. And I'm thinking of the work of Sophia Rosenfeld, uh, Jonathan Sheehan and Jorah Warman, uh, Dan Edelstein. And they've, they've all in various ways shown us, the, shown us how master ideas that we associate with the Enlightenment are not just about the cold application of reason, but they're also about mobilizing forms of belief and modalities of belief. Uh, so I was inspired by that. I'm still inspired by that work, but I also felt somewhat authorized by that work to apply those insights gleaned from historical epistemology to questions of economic thought and practice. Uh, and you know, the way I wound up organizing that application of that intervention is through, is through economic theology. Um, and then once I did that, it helped me understand even more pointedly things that we already kind of know intuitively. I mean, of course, financial credit involves a strong measure of faith. Uh, the parameters of that faith were changing and being contested over the course of the century. Um, you know, there's the general narrative of moving from personal to impersonal credit relations. But I think once, once we introduce questions of spiritual relations, uh, the question becomes, and the dynamic and the direction becomes uh, more complicated. Um, but we're also in a period in which economic actors across the social spectrum are being confronted with relatively novel instruments. That's not to say the instruments didn't exist, but they're circulating in far greater quantities and at far higher velocities. Case in point, John Law's experiments with a fiat form of currency uh, during the rise and fall of the system in the 1710s and 1720s. Uh, how does one attempt to get at the question of how participants in the system related to those financial instruments. Uh, and it, I found it quite striking that the, 
the chief publicist for that system on the cusp, at its apex, but also at the cusp of its collapse, was a trained theologian, uh, Jean Terresson, who had written during his seminary training on transubstantiation. Uh, and I think I was, I was able to show the ways in which his previous thinking about transubstantiation, which he continued to revise, um, through the period of the lawfare informed his understanding of how the paper bills of law's bank weren't just passive representations of wealth. They were actually a means of conjuring and circulating that wealth um, in unprecedented and almost unfathomable ways uh, for that time. Um, so I'm dealing with leaps of faith and, but to try you know, to get back to your question, the, the grounds on which um, leaps of faith can be justified and warranted. And you know, what, I've, what I found that partly because that's the focus of the book is the way in which an existing cultural, intellectual, symbolic arsenal, the theology and liturgical practices of the Catholic church were brought to bear in these questions. Uh, if someone has a rough and ready understanding of how transubstantiation works, then you know, perhaps if you make an argument about the representational prowess of a banknote, um, that structural analog gives one a, a way in uh, to what really is a pretty tricky epistemological uh, problem. Um, and you see this in other realms as well. So later in the book, uh, I deal more pointedly what, what we normally would classify as enlightenment political economy. Uh, and in the French uh, context, that would mean physiocracy. So Francois Quenet's tableau economique, I mean, it's, it's, for one, I mean, if you've seen it, it's, it's mystifying. I mean, there are all these zigzags, not clear how one point relates to the other. You've got to sit there and study it pretty seriously before um, anything resembling coherence comes into view. But Canet himself uh, in his articles in the Encyclopédie uh, argued that intuition uh, has a key role in mediating our relationship, our psychological relationship and epistemological relationship to evidence. Uh, and here I'm, I'm, I'm drawing also on the work of uh, Leona Vardy, uh, who's written um, quite compellingly on, on this question. So, so you know, Kinney is at once um, considered this hyper-rational economic theorist, uh, but he's also this really interesting theorist of intuition. Uh, and for him, the two went together. Uh, and of course, uh, one of the things that makes this period so fascinating is the ways in which those grounds for leaps of faith are, are shifting over the course of the century. And you know, thank heavens, because that's precisely what makes them suitable for historical, uh, historical analysis. It's really the precondition for that, for that analysis. And I would say that it's precisely the contingency, the indeterminacy of these encounters between theology uh, and uh, the economy as conventionally understood that made it possible ultimately uh, for otherwise rather mundane objects to be endowed with incredibly mysterious uh, and powerful forces that Marx himself later would, would, would seize upon. Uh, you know, and this dynamic is not a dead letter. It's not, it hasn't ended, it's continuing to change, uh, but in ways that are eerily recognizable. I mean, if you think of the recent crazes over digital assets like cryptocurrencies and non-fungible tokens, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's exactly the same as what's going on um, in the debates over laws, banknotes, 
Uh, but there, there, there are rather fascinating, you know, lines of continuity. Um, I'm, and and what's when and what's particularly striking for me is how how those financial experiments are sort of throwing off all these speculations about exactly what money is. After we've lived with the stuff for um, a couple of centuries, and you'd think by now we would be sufficiently familiar, but you know, the, the, the power of money to continually defamiliarize and then, and then familiarize what would once seem almost unfathomable, it continues to, uh, continues to surprise. And talking of um, the forms of analysis that we can bring to bear on, on these different things, you, are, are, are writing this work of, of intellectual history, but it is also, as, as you put it, a quote, contribution to the emerging field of heterodox economics, which would suggest, or, or perhaps it does it, a slightly different object. And so I'm, I'm wondering then for you, what those projects have to do with one another um, and how you were able to, to speak to the imperatives of, of both things in this work. Right, yeah, so, I mean, insofar as heterodox economics calls into question the fixity of laws governing market relations um, and remains open to various alternatives, then you know, I've found it incredibly salutary for my, for my work. Um, there, are, there are certain seminal figures that we could now associate with heterodox economics, even, you know, the term didn't exist at the time. So um, Marcel Mauss on the gift economy, uh, Georges Bataille on the general economy. Um, but as the name heterodox implies, we can't reduce uh, this approach to any single school or tradition. Um, and so, I mean, in the book, I pass between these various schools. I mean, usually it's just in the in notes, but um, if one if one reads or rereads with the endnotes in mind, those reference points I think become fairly clear. Um, but again, one common point of departure for all of these uh, rather disparate approaches is the rejection of neoclassical uh, economic orthodoxy and faith in market equilibrium. Uh, so that's another reason why I was so drawn to the rise and fall of law system uh, and speculative bubbles. It's precisely a moment where that equilibrium uh, breaks down. So yeah, as for my more modest contribution as an historian, I mean, for one, a calling card of heterodox economics is the way in which it's been receptive to other disciplines. I mean, not just history, there's also you know, there's, there's, a, there's, there's a rise, you think of behavioral economics or think of neuroeconomics. I mean, so it's not, it's not just what's going on in history, but I would, I would say that history in general and intellectual history in particular uh, is very good at opening perspectives on alternatives and variations uh, of any object of inquiry. But in my case, that object of inquiry is classical political economy. So, there's yet another sort of move in heterodoxy here as well that's worth noting in that I don't take the British case as paradigmatic. Uh, I focus on France, uh, which itself doesn't fit with more hidebound renderings of how classical political economy came, came to be. Uh, so it afforded me, and I think intellectual history more broadly, uh, but French intellectual history in the context of what I'm talking about, um, restore some contingency and some variability uh, to a discipline, that is the discipline of economics, that often, at least in my mind, poses itself as transhistorical. There are certain laws of economic development and uh, we can discern them. And once we do, uh, they are not subject to uh, interpretation and they're certainly not subject to being, uh, to being overthrown. 
so, so in that way, I would say that that not only not only this book, but also um, books like Sheena Warman's are these are all attempts to um, defamiliarize and maybe even sort of denaturalize ways of economic thinking uh, that remain uh, almost unassailable as, as, as tenants of economic orthodoxy. And so with an object like classical political economy and with actors like these economic theologists, can you say more about what practices of reading you brought to these texts and objects, particularly uh, as as concerns what you what you just laid out for us about the the kind of different conversations that you're participating in? Um, for instance, as as you write, you know these texts are kind of mystic and an expansive rather than narrow sense. You're characterizing these things in, in these parallel conversations. Can you can you say a little bit about how to go about reading these things that have not um, until now necessarily been read for, for this particular end, um, for this particular interpretive aim. Right, yeah. Um, so I guess first and really above all, I, I've tried to stay attentive to what I call in the book, you know, following Paul Friedland, you know, representation active modes of presentation versus passive modes of representation as mere reflection. Uh, and that was a clearly viable and in many cases predominant mode of figuring representation in the early modern period. So I wanted to keep that active mode of representation in mind uh, as I read the text. Um, and so partly it was about remaining somewhat faithful and also trying to figure out what an author's intentions were given, given the reading practices that were prevalent at the time. So that's more of a kind of Cambridge school uh, approach, but I also tried to cast beyond that um, that approach at various points, or have that only be the first sort of stage of of reading, um, and move into a kind of more symptomatic reading uh, aimed at capturing a problematic. Uh, and of course, to me, that problematic is the convergences of uh, the spiritual and the material economies. What that meant, I think, for me was um, resisting the temptation of reducing one of those elements to the other, and in particular, resisting the temptation of resisting, I'm sorry, of, of reducing the spiritual to the material or the theological to the economic. Um, and so when theologians wrote about more conventional economic topics like money or like lending an interest, they didn't stop being theologians. Uh, and so I, I consciously tried to remind myself of that. Um, sometimes it was hard because it looks to all the world that they're writing like a more classical uh, political economist who belongs to the canon and most of the thinkers that I deal with, uh, I, I don't think um, quite qualify as part of that classical political economic canon with the exception of figures like Kinney and Torgot that I deal with in, in, in a single chapter. Um, so I try to remain sensitive to really the kind of accretion of meanings rather than the substitution of one set of meanings for another. Um, and you know, that also meant taking metaphor and parody seriously. Uh, maybe I'll begin with parody. I mean, so for example, in the fallout of John Law's system, there's this avalanche of satirical works and a lot of those works uh, lampoon Law's system and faith in Law's system um, by likening it to 
the Philosopher's Stone of Alchemy. And it's easy to dismiss parody as, you know, it's a light genre, it's not saying anything really serious, but you know, my thinking is that parody is only intelligible if it presumes the existence of the thing that it's trying to trivialize uh, and send up. Um, so there was a way in which I wanted to take parody seriously. So that was, that was another uh, practice of reading, but then also taking metaphors seriously, precisely because of the generative power that so many of my actors attributed to the semiotic field more broadly, but of language more specifically. Again, think of the act by which the host is consecrated as the body of, of Christ. Uh, so for economic theology, metaphors really happened. And I wanted to keep that in mind um, as, as a reading practice. So turning then to the story that you're telling us that comes out of all of this, you're bringing together luxury, speculation, property, money, the commodity form, slavery, colonialism, in this triangulation of the moment of the emergence of, of the confluence that you laid out for us. What is specific about France in this period, besides the decentering gesture that you mentioned earlier about the relationship to, to Britain and in classical political economy? What is specific about France that allowed you to narrate this um, complicated back and forth? Yeah, and I think complicated back and forth is a good way of, of putting it. Um, so thank you. I mean, part of it was the, the sheer density uh, and range of interactions in the, in the back and forth. Um, so France was militarily uh, the most powerful kingdom on the European continent uh, in the 18th century. It was at the apex of early modern capitalist development uh, by multiple metrics in terms of credit and consumption, uh, even if that means the, uh, the, the vastness of its public debt. Um, the radical experiments in the use of paper currency during uh, John Law's system, uh, it's, central place in a very wide global web of trans-oceanic trade. Um, that doesn't mean that its economy wasn't still overwhelmingly agrarian, it was. But at the same time, it loomed over Europe as uh, this focal point of luxury production and in setting fashion for luxury consumption. Uh, not only in Europe, but uh, throughout its colonies. Um, and I would also note that the, the, the Code Noir uh, of 1685, which meant to govern the relationships between plantation masters and enslaved persons, the Code Noir was issued the same year as the Edict of Fontainebleau at 1685, which revoked the Edict of Nantes, which it afforded uh, a measure of religious toleration to uh, Protestants. Uh, in, in France, and in fact, the very first article of the Code Noir is this commitment to uh, religious uniformity and religious orthodoxy. So even, even in matters of colonial trade uh, and governing colonial relations, these religious questions uh, were, were apparent. Um, and that brings me to another reason why France figure so mightily, and that has to do with the sheer economic power that the church wielded. So that's, you know, the material base there is in some ways the land of property that the church owns, uh, but also the, the credit that the church was able to sustain and mobilize, which the state drew on uh, compulsively, precisely because the church could often borrow on more favorable terms uh, than the monarchy. Uh, and so we're dealing with 
in the case of France, a territory that is itself rich uh, and wields a great deal of economic power as well as political and military power. Its theologians are perhaps the most influential uh, in all of Europe, at least, uh, at least in the Catholic camp, uh, which of course uh, remains uh, incredibly important during this period. It is also an epicenter uh, of thinking that we now associate with Enlightenment philosophy. Uh, so even if I hadn't been trained as a French historian as well as an intellectual historian, I think I would have found the French case inescapable for doing a project like this. And on some of those questions of, of specificity, um, you know, obviously Catholicism uh, as, as a central feature of your book is, is one of them. And you invoke this idea of a Catholic ethic, um, which you know might seem at first about you writing against a Weberian understanding of the religious, social, and cultural underpinnings of the development of capitalism as rooted in the Reformation and Protestantism. But of course, it's it's more than that. There's something specific, as you just said, happening. One of those things that you've that you've outlined a little bit earlier is is these objects of Catholic piety, the material aspect. Um, but there's also something in this set of debates and shifts that you discuss that really does amount to something that, that is discrete and then something that can be called a Catholic ethic for more reasons other than simply um, writing against paper. So could you, could you say more about what that is and what holds it together as an object for you? Yeah, and, and, and thanks for that question. Uh, I've gotten variations uh, of that question at multiple points, but, but um, your formulation is particularly uh, sensitive. So I realize I'm kind of asking for these kinds of questions, but partly because of the title of the book. Um, and yes, I do engage with, with Weber in the introduction. Uh, but I have to say that my quarrel really isn't so much with Weber as, as it is with a kind of Weberian paradigm in the historiography that for all of the empirical doubts that have been cast on Weber's thesis as he originally articulated it in the Protestant ethic has remained incredibly hard to kind of exercise. Um, so that was one of the things that I was, I was trying to do. Um, and one of the reasons is because, at least to my mind, one of the unfortunate, perhaps unintended effects of the influence of this Weberian paradigm is that it winds up naturalizing not only Anglo-American exceptionalism and economic matters, um, it also winds up naturalizing, I think, capitalism itself by making that particular mode of production seem self-evident. And it makes it seem self-evident because it links it to rationalization and secularization. Now, I don't dispute the importance of those master narratives, but I do think that they're woefully incomplete. So. You're right, my aim is not merely to, you know, fill a hole that was left, a lacuna that was left by, by, by saying, oh, the French were capitalists too. Um, Catholics could also um, provide a kind of ideological infrastructure for something that we now call capitalism. I also wanted to get at a side to, capitalism as not only an economic, but cultural system that's left out of a lot of those barbarian narratives. Those barbarian narratives are usually preoccupied with questions of production and accumulation. My sense about the Catholic ethic is that it lends itself to exploring, excavating, of the depths of consumption uh, and then the desires that animated that desire to 
consume. Uh, and part of that is owing to my own conviction that, that the desire to consume is not merely a reflexively natural impulse um, that people will consume merely because they have the opportunity to do so. I think it also has something to do with precisely with the kinds of faith that they invest in the objects of consumption. And that is something that devotional objects allow us to get at, which is another facet of your question. And, you know, by this point, I, you know, no one needs to make the case for there having been a consumer revolution, uh, certainly in Britain and in France during the 18th century. Um, but my feeling was that we still didn't know enough, we still don't know enough about how people consumed and why they consumed. Uh, and since I was not willing to avail myself of a simplistic, naturalistic explanation, um, I wanted to find a source base that might cast some light on these questions of motivation. One of the virtues of devotional objects is that theologians and pastors wrote devotional manuals to go along with them, right? They're, they're not perfect as sources, but it's better, it's better than nothing. Uh, and so you, you have articulate actors who are willing to talk about how to approach uh, a consumer good and precisely the kinds of aspirations that can be staked on it. Uh, so that's, that's yet another reason why I wound up fixating on what I'm calling the Catholic ethic. Because, I'm not suggesting there are no devotional objects among Protestants, but they figure far more centrally and prominently, and they were theorized far more fulsomely in the Catholic context, partly in response to Catholic skepticism over the power that those objects wielded. Uh, so you're right, there is the, I am making a case for something more discreet for a kind of Catholic ethic. Um, there's a, a subtext to your question that I don't have a good answer to, but it's, it's worth acknowledging the possibility here is that you know, what Marx would call the commodity fetish of the, of the commodity, you don't need Catholicism for that in every case, in every instance. Obviously, there are plenty of people all over the world who I think have succumbed to that fetish uh, without, without having done so by, by way of capitalism. I'm sorry, Catholicism. But if we want to understand where that way of thinking came from in one particularly salient, not only theological context, but political and economic and colonial context, it seems to me that France is a productive candidate for that kind of historical, uh, historical work. Um, now it remains to be seen, I, I know I might do some of this work, other scholars might, are there variations on this Catholic ethic, first and foremost in other Catholic economies in the 18th century, uh, but also can we get at some of those dynamics in non-Catholic religious context? Um, so perhaps, I mean, the book is, is, is pointing to a future agenda that it can in no way realize. And if part of what's at stake is, is this incredibly prevalent paradigm that you mentioned. Um, I do wonder how you hope that we might teach this work, especially because a lot of the narratives that you're talking about are the ones that are particularly um, foundational to the stories we tell and, and, and the histories we teach our students about the enlightenment, about the history of France, um, about the history of the world economy. Um, and uh, you, as, as someone who teaches yourself, I, I, I wonder how an intervention like yours might figure into um, the sort of way that we chart these things um, for undergraduates, for, for people um, we, we talk with about uh, these meta-narratives that are at stake here. One way I think that the, the book could be brought to bear in the classroom is by putting it in dialogue with some of the narratives in 
recent scholarly works I've already cited, like Sheena Warman, um, Francesca Trivellato, uh, Michael Quas, uh, and, and many, many others. Um, and you know, partly by getting at some of these questions as to what, what prompted this explosion in consumption uh, and consumption practices in the, in the 18th century. Uh, and to show that some of the preconditions for that consumer revolution are unlikely, right? We, we might be tempted to identify them first and foremost with the Enlightenment. Uh, with the apotheosis of everyday life and of human betterment that we associate with the Enlightenment. Um, and that's part of the answer, but there's also this religious context that is worth recovering. Um, so I think that's one way. Uh, in you know, in a graduate seminar, I think the work is a little easier in that it, I do try to put the book in, in dialogue with scholars, scholars like Sheena Warman, like Francesca Trivellato, Rebecca Spang and others. Um, but I'm also trying to show a kind of different side of what have become increasingly standard and dare I say orthodox narratives about the relationship between theology and political economy during this period. And that standard story is basically one of the unintended consequences of Augustinianism uh, with Jansenist thinkers like, or thinkers influ influenced by Jansenism like Mandeville uh, figuring rather centrally. Um, well, I would say that there's, again, a whole nother side to the coin uh, that actually sees consumption in a far more redemptive light. And that can help us understand um, the allure of consumption. And if we can understand more fully the allure of consumption, we can understand the brutal quest for new markets and new natural resources during the period. Um, and I mean, as I mentioned, I think all too briefly in the book, of course, the rise and fall of John Law's system itself has this immediate colonial context. Um, and part of that has to do with the ways in which French Louisiana was regarded in propaganda for law system as this El Dorado, as this field of enchantment. Um, where did that kind of thinking come from? How did that kind of thinking resonate uh, with people who were used to seeing a kind of everyday miracle go on with the consecration of the Eucharist, with the public adoration of the Eucharist? Uh, in a Catholic culture in which alchemical claims to transubstantiation, so transmutation and, and the endless production of wealth, in which those kinds of claims were intelligible given the prevailing sacramental context. So you know, insofar as the book might condition either readers or, or, or students to think about consumption as something other than a purely natural act, then I will feel as though I have acquitted myself well, well enough. And so speaking of consequence, um, <laughs> you end your book with a reflection on the Paris, not of the Enlightenment, but of the Arcades Project. Yeah. And so I'm wondering what shifts for you in your story as we confront something that is very much in the background of, of this conversation, the rupture of the 20th century and even perhaps the 21st, and what might change about our understandings of capitalism and how it, it itself changes when we take economic theology with, and perhaps alongside Marx, and in particular alongside someone like Benjamin. Yeah, so, 
I mean, as I as I as I mentioned, you know, a few minutes ago, part part of my part of the rationale behind the engagement with those thinkers was because they're able to they're able to analyze capitalism as a far more fully realized system than than any of my figures or actors were. Uh, so, but they they seem to have done so uh, in in ways that draw on theological discourses that I do trace in, in the book. So that, that was one reason uh, to show how economic theology isn't just, well, a vanishing mediator, as Frederick Jameson put it in his critique of Weber, that it endures, it has all of these bizarre afterlives including in the fetish character of the commodity. And so I obviously couldn't help but engage Marx on that question, but I wanted to engage Benjamin, not only because I think he's one of the more powerful exponents of Marxian thinking, but he himself very much is a heterodox Marxist. You know, So he definitely, I think, he belongs to this tradition of heterodox economics and economic thinking um, with which I am I am in dialogue. Uh, he was quite explicit about his debts to uh, theology, not only Christian theology, but also, also Jewish theology. Um, he comments quite explicitly on a theme that was a structuring principle in the early modern luxury debate, the profligacy of women. Uh, so there was a way in which Benjamin brought together so many threads uh, that I'd been trying to weave across a rather wide and disparate range of sources uh, in his in his own corpus. And of course, it didn't hurt that the arcades project is about Paris, right? So um, I don't really believe in serendipity, but um, Benjamin almost seemed too good to be true for the kind of book I was trying to write. And again, that was one of those decisions that I made really very late. I mean, there's a way in which I came to Benjamin as much through my research on the early modern period as I drew on Benjamin to inform the research that I did uh, on, on the past. And on the rupture of the 20th and 21st centuries and, and what economic theology might I do for us there. Yeah, so can we, well, I guess one question is, is there, is there any possibility of redemption? Redemption from commodity fetishism. And that was another reason why I found Benjamin particularly alluring is that as pessimistic as he can sometimes seem, he's will offer he'll also offer these little glimmers of hope, you know, that that you know, understanding the the theological valence of something like the allure of commodities can help us to not wish it away, but work through it in a far more self-conscious way than would be possible otherwise. Um, I certainly don't think that this enterprise is very far along. Um, and the other thing I would say is, and this is moving from the 20th to the 21st century, is that one prospect that neither Marx nor Weber, I'm sorry, Marx or Benjamin had to deal with in any concerted way was impending ecological catastrophe. The idea that there is actually an end to natural resources. The economy is not a bottomless crucible of wealth creation. Perhaps coming to terms with the economic theology 
of infinite abundance will help us understand that that, that ideal and the aspirations that surround it have a history. That history is often quite strange uh, and quite fantastical. Uh, and if it had a past, it very well could have an end. And so how do we then recalibrate and reorder our relationship to the goods that we make, knowing that they are not conduits to economic and psychic salvation. 